The views, information, and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the speakers and do not represent Holding Short Media nor any organization that the speakers have been, currently are, or will be affiliated with. Hello, and welcome to the Holding Short Podcast. I'm your host, Laura Matheson. Today, we are joined by Dr. Farah Ali Bey. Dr. Farah Ali Bey has been a systems engineer at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory for the past seven years. She's currently a system engineer on the Perseverance rover, which landed on Mars on February 18, 2021. She has held a number of tasks on this mission, including testing its mobility system, supporting preparations for surface ops, and now leading tactical shifts during surface ops, as well as being the operations interface with the Mars Helicopter Technology Demonstration, Ingenuity. Ingenuity performed the first powered flight on another planet in April, 2021. Prior to joining the M2020 team, Dr. Alibe worked on the InSight Mars lander, as well as its companion, the Mars Cube One CubeSats. Dr. Alibe possesses an undergraduate and master's degree from the University of Cambridge in the UK, and a PhD from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, all in aerospace engineering. I could not be more honored to have her joining me today. Welcome, Dr. Farah Ali Bey. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you so much for making the time for us. All that to say, how did you get your start in aviation? Well, it's a little bit of a, a roundabout story of how I ended up here. So I, you know, I, I worked in the aerospace and I always kind of dreamt of exploring space when I was when I was a kid. Um, and you know, watching all the you know, I grew up in the 90s, so watching all the space movies that were on uh, at the time, Star Wars, Star Trek, I remember a big movie that had an influence on me was um, was uh, Apollo 13, which was the story of the Apollo astronauts that, that had a mishap on their way to the moon. Um, so all that to say, I always kind of had my head in space, always kind of dreamt about that. Uh, but I actually didn't really know that there was a place for me in aviation or in aerospace as a whole um, growing up, you know, from women and, and girls, especially at the time. But still today, when you're good at school, the, um, you know, the immediate reaction isn't usually, oh, you should become an engineer, right? It was usually you should become a doctor or a teacher or whatever it is. And, and those are great professions. It's just that girls weren't always encouraged to go into aerospace. Um, but honestly, the way that I ended up speaking in this profession is when I was 16 and you have those careers class at school, um, they made us do a little quiz. You know, those, well, it was actually a pretty detailed quiz about what our interests were and what our personality was. And number one of 20 careers that I could, that would be good for me was aerospace engineer. And I kid you not, it took me that long to figure out that my love of tinkering and math and physics and space was actually a job. And it kind of like, I remember that moment and I was like, oh yeah, of course that's what I should do. Um, and that's how I ended up picking that as a career. And it's, um, it's funny because my partner did you know, a similar test in high school and he got number one garbage man. So I cannot tell you whether, <laughs> um, whether those tests are good or not. It just so happened that um, that he's not a garbage man, by the way. Um, uh, but he, it just tells you that those tests don't really work for anyone, but they did for me. And that's how I ended up picking that career. <laughs> and I think part of it as well is having the influence of film and movies. I remember watching Apollo 13 as well, and being incredibly inspired by everything that was going on, even if it was just maybe slightly more uh, dramatized than you would see in real life. But those career class tests, they point out some very bizarre career paths, but they can also point you in the right direction or towards a job that you never knew existed, like aerospace engineering. Yeah, I think for me, you know, I knew engineering was a field. My dad is an engineer, but he's an electrical engineer. And I just, I was just never really interested in it. And mechanical engineering wasn't quite right for me either. I just, I couldn't really see a path towards um, aerospace. And it's, you know, I grew up in England where even aerospace engineering is very focused on, on planes and jet engines, which is really cool. I just didn't really know whether that was exactly what I wanted to do or even 
you know, when you don't have role models or people who are on in those fields in your circles, or, you know, this was the start of the internet. We had the internet, but no one had like smartphones or Instagram to like share their stories. It's bizarre to say, but it was, yeah, I really did just didn't know what that job was or that it was a job. So um, I think people growing up these days today, you know, a lot more, a lot more lucky, right? That they have a lot more resources to learn about these jobs. But, but certainly what it taught me is just to keep an open mind because sometimes you can have a passion and a curiosity and just not really know that that's really your job, but that there's probably something out there that, that feels like, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I know we talk about sort of the power of the idea of if you can see it, then you can be it. But if you don't know that it exists at all, it's very hard to imagine yourself there or think about how you could find yourself moving towards that as a career path. So Yes, but the sort of as the internet has become more prolific, it is easier to maybe see someone in a role that you think is cool and you can be exposed to it that way as opposed to never hearing about it until it's maybe quote unquote too late. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, for me, one thing growing up is that I always, I wanted to be an astronaut, right? Of course, because that's the thing you see on TV. I mean, I still want to be an astronaut because that would be incredible. But, um, but you know, it's one of those things. It's like wanting to be a rock star. You can't just really count on it. There's probably less astronauts than there are rock stars out there, to be honest. But, um, but you know, and so it was one of those things that I knew, yeah, I really want to be an astronaut. But then it, you know, the next question is, okay, well, what does it take to be an astronaut? And I was like, I guess they're engineers. Some of them are doctors. Some of them are scientists. Like, I didn't really know. And then also it's like, okay, well, if I don't want to be an astronaut, is there another career that's like close to that where I can, you know, when I can still explore and contribute to aerospace, but, uh, and still put my hat in the ring to be an astronaut, but have a full career. And yeah, it took me, it took me a long time to find that path. Um, But also I think, one thing that we have to acknowledge maybe for your younger listeners is that you don't really know at age 12 or 14, you know, I always say like, I, it wasn't until the age of 16 that I decided I want to be an aerospace engineer. Well, that's actually pretty young to, to be deciding on a career, right? So, so for anyone that's listening, that's like, yeah, I'm really into three or four different things, but you know, I'm like 15 or 16. And I still don't know what I want to do for the rest of my life. That is 100% absolutely normal. And, and in fact, you may change careers when I started. So, you know, I, I decided to go down this path and then I ended up uh, um, pursuing aerospace engineering at the University of Cambridge in England. And my, up to my master's, all of my coursework and my thesis work was all working on planes and jet engines. And that, that was what I was working on, mostly because that was a specialty there, but also because I was really interested in it. And it, I could see a, a clear career path in that. And it, it's, really neat the type of work that's being done uh, in those in that field Um, and and again it took me till the end of my master's degree and I was like you know I just really want to work for NASA like I really still have this bug of exploring space like I know I have all these skills I could have a really great job in aviation um, you know working jet engines I even had a job offer um, for a lot from a launch company in the UK but in the back of my mind, I was like, oh, but I want to explore other planets. And I had a PhD offer. You know, it's like job offer, real money, real adult, really cool, like, you know, opportunities. Or I'm going to go do four more years of school somewhere in America and hope that I find a job. Uh, but I took that leap of faith because there was part of me that was just so curious about working in space, about exploring other planets. Um, so I made, you know, I made a swap and I took that risk. I had to go learn, you know, a lot of the skills between air and space are very similar. That's why they usually combine into one discipline. Um, but there are things that are different, right? You control spacecraft very differently. Um, and so I, I had to go learn some of those skills pretty much from scratch and, and um, swapped over to doing that PhD. And it was 100% worth it. But, but all that to say, right, on that same point of like, it's not like it was a direct path of like, okay, at 16, I knew. And then here was the three things that I did to get myself to NASA. It was very much windy. Um, and I changed my mind multiple times about where I wanted to go. I know my parents drove me nuts when I was a teenager, reminding me that life is not linear. It is a big zigzag and you never know exactly how it will all come together for you. And even Although I knew, I, I say I knew that I was going to be in aviation when I was about five years old, 
but the role that I wanted to have changed all the time. There were times where I wanted to be an astronaut. I had no interest in Mars at the time. I was only interested in the moon and was disappointed <laughs> that we weren't doing more moon uh, work at that time. I'd wanted to be an aerospace engineer, realized I like math. I don't like math that much. Uh, and then just wanted to be Capcom. That was just a whole job I wanted to have. So you can, as you said, you're being 16 years old and not knowing what you want to do. You still have so much time. There's roles that you've never even heard of yet. And just because you see the end destination doesn't mean the way you get there won't be really different, really creative, uh, and just an entire adventure in its own right. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you can be 30 years old and not know what you want to do. We have people at my work who change careers all the time. I have a coworker who used to be a professional musician and then saw one of the last shuttle launches and was like, whoa, this is what I want to do. And he was like, you know, in his late 20s, went back to school and then works with me. Similarly, uh, I have a very good friend of mine who, um, who, you know, is a, was a chemist. He worked in the pharmaceutical industry and thought, you know, I really want to change the pace. I'm curious about chemistry on other planets. And he came over and did a postdoc and now he does incredible research in, you know, in natural biology. Um, so I guess it's not just for your younger listeners, right? There's, there's, I think it's, that's just a general message of your journey might be one way, but you'll find your path. And sometimes your passions change and, and you have to follow that. So although you grew up in the UK, you're originally from a small town in Quebec, where you say that NASA was, quote, unheard of. How do you think growing up in a small town prepared you for the career you've had so far? Yeah, that's very interesting uh, as a question. So, yeah, I grew up in a very small town in north of Montreal. And um, I think it the experience there, I mean, it was incredible growing up in rural Canada, right? It wasn't too rural. We had a Canadian Tire and a McDonald's, so it was a city, not a town. <laughs> I think that's what made it slightly bigger. Um, but so, yeah, I think one of the challenges when you grew up in smaller towns is that it's sometimes hard to imagine yourself leaving there um, because a lot of people are from there, grow around, grow there, grow up there, and then end up working there, which is totally fine. Um, we came in as an immigrant family. Um, and so when we moved to that town, we were actually the only family of color. And so growing up, there were some moments that were very hard. People would ask me, well, where are you from? And I would answer, well, I'm from Montreal. Like I'm here, I'm Canadian. I was born here, right? And I faced a lot of bullying when I was in school um, <clears throat> from kids who just didn't understand. And it's not really their fault right, that they see someone who has a different skin color. They grow up in an area where everyone looks like them. And then all of a sudden, you know, they have to deal with within themselves if they don't have the education to understand that someone looks different, right? Um, so I bring up these hard and difficult moments because they did teach me resilience and they taught me how to be patient and to teach others. Um, unfortunately, often it, it falls on the minorities to teach others. Okay, this, you know, I remember someone in school used to call me chocolate. And they would just tease me over and over again and say that I was chocolate. And I was like, one day I turned around and this was like six-year-old Farah. And I was like, well, at least I'm milk chocolate, which is way better than white chocolate. And that, that stopped them from talking forever. Um, <laughs> they were like, oh, you're right. <laughs> um, because white chocolate's horrible. Um, but um, but um, at least in my opinion, someone might have different opinions. <laughs> um, but um, so, you know, I say all that because those are certainly things I, I am a minority often in this field. It's not something that it's something that we're working to change. Um, but a lot of those experiences in, in, in resilience and in, 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 in going through that has prepared me for sort of that difficulty in our field, right? Like, I, I'm used to be the only person in the room. I'm used to be the person that's slightly different. I'm not saying that it's necessarily a good thing, but it definitely gave me the skills to learn to stand up for myself, to learn to reach out to others too, to be a good ally, because those are things that, you know, maybe I, sometimes I don't face the same types of discriminations here, um, but certainly I'm more aware of them and, and better at stepping in and, and helping others. So so in that sense, that that was definitely very helpful. Um, but you know, I, I want to say that on the other hand of 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 that 
particular aspect of growing up in a small town. There were also some wonderful aspects of it that uh, that let me grow up and be a kid and explore my passions, right? When you grew up in a small town, I mean, I remember I would bike to the library by myself and pick up whatever books I was interested in. And I would, I would learn to, um, we had a big house and I would uh, learn to build things with my dad because we had the space to do that. So all of those experiences that I had growing up as a kid figure skating and skiing and doing all of those things that that helped me figure out what I was curious about they helped me explore parts of myself I owe that to, to having grown up in a smaller town and certainly um, those are very fond memories that that kind of forged me as to who I am and and are the reason that I'm uh, this person today now I can only speak to the experience of being a woman in aviation um, so I can very much appreciate being a woman of color within aviation, being its own different set of challenges than just being a white woman in aviation um, and focusing on being an ally and making sure that there is a space for voices of those who are people of color within aviation is something that I think the whole industry needs to be better at doing. We can't just be a homogenous group. We need to celebrate the fact that we're diverse and that includes making room for voices of different people within the industry. Absolutely, I mean, I think diversity, especially in our field, is the way we're going to survive. It's, it's our strength, right? I often tell people, you know, if I'm gonna form a team, I don't want five other FARs. I don't want five other people who have had the exact same experiences as I've had because we work extremely difficult problems that no one has worked before. And if I get a team of people who have the exact same background, the exact same opinions as I have, they're just going to repeat what I say. And that's not what I want. What I want in a team is people who have those different backgrounds, that had that different career, that had that different experience growing up. Because when it comes to problem solving, diversity is what lets you see a problem differently and it all comes from your experience and and I think once you acknowledge that and understand that that's true that creativity and problem solving come from diverse a better with diversity it's it's not just at that point you know I think it's really what we need in order to survive as an industry and to be better um so it's uh I often you know it's it's the right thing to do because we should treat everyone equally and give everyone a seat at a table. And also we shouldn't be benching, you know, half of our population and not making a space for them. So it's the right thing to do in that sense. And it's actually a good thing to do for our field because I think that's how we're going to get better. Mm -hmm. And again, this idea of creativity and troubleshooting, being able to see something uh, from a multifaceted, multifaceted perspective. If you're trying to troubleshoot something on earth, I can imagine it is incredibly as helpful trying to troubleshoot something that is on another planet when you have that many different uh, perspectives from an earth perspective that you can apply to an extra terrestrial body. Oh yeah, well troubleshooting things on Mars or on other planets, I can tell you is it's a, it's a beast um, because you know, you're used to, I always tell people there's no, you know, there's no car repair service on Mars. And so when you send something on Mars, you really have to be prepared to be very creative about the way that you're going to solve problems. And actually that's one of the reasons why I love what we do um, because you, you really have to commit to your design and your team and what you're sending and the redundancy in your system, right? Like the fact that you might, you have a way to survive failures and some of the most incredible work that we do, like in Apollo 13, right? That's the reason why I liked that movie so much is because like, they literally fit a square peg in a round hole. And that's kind of what we do um, because you can't send new parts. You can't fix things uh, once they're on other planets if you don't have humans there. Um, and so, yeah, I think a lot of people often ask like, what does it take to, you know, what do you think the strongest skills are that you would need to work uh, in aerospace or, uh, you know, especially in planetary exploration, but I would say in aviation in general. And, you know, they often assume that I'm going to say, oh, physics and math and, and those other things. But really, my answer is always no, you need to be a good communicator, a good team worker, you have to be creative and passionate. Because those are things that I can't teach you, I can teach anyone math or physics on my team, right, or basic principles. Uh, but those skills um, that we don't talk about as often, those, you know, I think that the secret sauce to our, our entire industry. 
and even again, jumping back to Apollo 13, which will be the unsung hero of this episode. Um, <laughs> I mean, at one point you see, you sort of see everyone just presented with, okay, this is everything that they have on board. And it just is just an assortment of different things. It's like, we need to figure out how we can fix this problem. This is all we have. You cannot get anything else. And I remember watching that as a kid and thinking, oh, wow, this, like, imagine the stakes and then understanding later on of, no, no, that was real life. They had to figure that out. Yeah, that was my favorite scene. I mean, I think that's the scene, looking back at it, I think that's the scene, like, would that made me decide that that was the field I wanted to be in? Because to me, it wasn't just, I mean, the stakes, of course, are stressful, but what I found incredible um, with that story, right, is the teamwork. And, and one of the things that's incredible about what we do is that we get to contribute to something that's greater than ourselves, right? You saw them as a team, they solve the problem. It's never a single person. It's never a single genius that does these things. As a team, they saved others. And as a team, we went to the moon. And as a team, we went on Mars and, and explored all these planets. And, and you know, on the, on the project that I work on right now, Perseverance, um, that is true too. I like to remind people that there's no one no one on my team of about a thousand people that understands every single part of the rover. They're just, it's just too complex and there's too much to know. There's too many details. What we have is a team of people that together by working together and communicating and sharing information and, and owning parts of the system can build something incredible like that, that is now searching for signs of life on another planet, which is, you know, an insane question to ask in the first place. Um, and so so to me, that that's the beauty of what we do. And it's the beauty of humanity, right, is that we can be part of something that's greater than our individual selves. Jumping back to this idea of if you're trying to put a team together, you don't want five other Faras, you want five other unique people with different education backgrounds. Touching on your education, you have a PhD in aerospace, aeronautical and astronautical engineering. And your education take, took place at the University of Cambridge and MIT. That process involved lots of fellowships, exchanges, internships, and a ton of schoolwork. Could you walk us through your education and the kind of education that those who do what you do generally require? So that's another interesting one because again, everyone kind of has a little bit of a different path. And I often say, for example, if you wanna work at NASA, we pretty much have a place for everyone. I have I work with friends who have backgrounds in engineering or science or even artists and communicators and UI and UX engineers, things like that. But I can talk you through sort of my personal journey, um, which is a little bit different. So, so you know, if, if you're looking to enter this field and you're listening and you're in high school, um, one of the things that I did was that um, there were summer programs and, and they exist pretty much everywhere um, tied to universities. And it was like a week or two and, and we would have some aerospace design challenge and they would teach us the basics. And that's how I really sort of convinced myself that that was the field I wanted to go to. I got to do some really interesting projects, visit places like Airbus, for example, um, as part of those. Um, typically when you're going to this field, you're going to need at least a bachelor's degree. Uh, that's not always true because you can work in aerospace with a vocational degree if you want to be, you know, the people that actually, it's funny that say I work on a rover, but I don't actually get to build the rover itself. We have very specialized technicians that do that. Um, so if that's what you want to do is actually build the thing um, and you're like, no, nah, I'm not, you know, designing whatever. I really want to be into the building. There is a whole path there that's sort of like a professional degree path. Um, but I went, I went down the um, the university path and 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 decided to go into um, engineering. So and from there, one of the things I always encourage people who are in university is go do internships. I did internships at the strangest of places, and I can tell you the first summer that I applied for internship, it was so frustrating. I don't know how many internships I applied for because when you're you know first year of university, you're not apparently it's very hard to get an internship as I found out because you don't have experience yet. Um, uh, but, you know, I inter interned for um, an aerospace defense company. I was actually 
I worked on like ships, like Navy ships for the summer. Um, my second year, I in, I interned for a, a car company and I was building cars and designing cars, which was really cool. Um, my third year, I was like, oh, let me see if maybe I want to use these skills to help people uh, in developing countries or, or countries that are struggling. And so I went out and spent the summer working in microfinance in India, looking at like strategies for rural electrification, uh, which was like the craziest, totally, you know, out of left field. But but the skills that we have, uh, you know, in aerospace and aviation are ones that are very broad and apply to all those things. So, so I took my time during a university to go explore those things to make sure that that you know what is it that I really wanted um, and then during my master's is when I finally got my first internship at NASA um, and that was you know that was that was quite an incredible uh, moment um, it's and then that's where I thought yeah that's this is really the place for me but even then NASA has different centers right um, and and there's contractors out there, and I was like, where where do I actually want to be? So um, so I you know went and did my PhD, partially because in my case, because I as I mentioned, my undergraduate and masters were sort of more focused on airplanes and jet engines, and I really wanted to make the swap to space. Um, so that's why I personally decided to go get my PhD so that I could focus on that. I was also, that was always kind of a goal of mine. I was really um, intrigued about what it takes to contribute to a body of science. I'm, you know, I like that academic part of it. That's not for everyone. And you don't need a PhD to be in this field at all. Um, in fact, it's only about maybe 25% of the people where I work that have PhDs um, and even less in, in other uh, companies. It just happened to be something that I personally wanted to do for myself and it aligned with my goals. But during my PhD, I did internships at JPL and actually my first JPL internship, JPL is a Jet Propulsion Lab where I work here in Los Angeles. Um, that first internship was the summer of 2012 which is when the Curiosity rover landed on Mars. And I remember that moment and I was like, yep, this is what I want to do. <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, you see the team landing, you know, this SUV car, SUV size uh, rover on Mars. And I thought, yeah, what? This is incredible, right? Like that was my Apollo 13 moment of like, yes, this is it, right? And um and so that's that's kind of when I really found my place and I was like, this is what I want to do. And then that helped me focus and finish my PhD. Um, but all that to say, you know, there's, there's two key takeaways here. I highly encourage anyone that's entering this field to do those internships and vary those internships, find that place for you. Um, even if you end up picking the first place you did an internship at, you'll know you made the right decision because you will have explored. And, and then the second is, is that there's really, everyone has their own path to going where they want to, to be. Um, and certainly looking at my path is one way, um, but you should figure out what's right for you uh, and, and figure out, okay, well, I don't really want to do a PhD. Is a master's enough? Most likely, yes. And, and that will lead you to certain positions and, that will probably be a better fit for you as it is because of your interests, right? So, um, so yeah, that's that's how I got to where I am. Now, interning sort of in a nautical sense as well as automotive and then microfinance, do you find that there were things that you learned throughout those internships that maybe you directly apply to your role and life now? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, it's funny because I, you know, I always thought like, oh, Okay, for example, I worked for, for a car manufacturer and thought, how is that going to ever apply? You know, later in life, I was like, oh, yeah, I did this internship. It's kind of silly that I did that. Well, as it turns out, some of the work that I was doing that summer was what we call in our field systems engineering. We were designing a car and there were conflicts between different parts, you know, a car is just like a little bit like a spacecraft, as it turns out, right? You have different pieces, you're limited in terms of mass, it has to be aerodynamic. Um, there's different people that are in charge of different parts, and they all have to come together. And then sometimes things don't quite fit. Same thing happens with a spacecraft. Um, so it, it was interesting in that sense, that I was like, oh, the work that I did was actually cutting edge systems engineering back then. And I was able to bring some of those skills with me. Um, same with 
same with when I was working uh, my first internship, we, they were developing a new system for these Navy ships. And, and so I got to understand how you do testing and verification and validation. It wasn't called that, but I was testing the system all summer, taking results, writing reports, um, suggesting modifications to the system, testing different types of materials for these filters that we were using. That is also part of what we do, right? And so all of these industries were very similar. Um, when I was working in microfinance, I was doing field research. I was interviewing people. I was making recommendations. Um, I was learning how to interact with people um, that have different backgrounds, different uh, different challenges in in, uh, in their lives, and and those were also incredible skills, right? Of communication, research, and writing. Um, so yes, I think all of the skills that I learned through these internships, uh, even though they weren't directly related to a spacecraft that's landing on Mars, are things that I've brought with me, and and that that make me a, a valuable part of my team, right? Because of those different experiences. Now, you've spoken in the past about the importance of mentorship. You've been both a mentee and a mentor in addition to volunteering within your community through programs like the Big Brothers, Big Sisters of America. What impact has mentorship had on your education and on your life? I think mentorship is a key um, to everyone's career. Uh, so growing up, my mentors, you know, I had teachers that were incredible mentors that saw the potential in me and I took extra time, you know, I had a math teacher that took extra time to teach me an extra module of math that wasn't being taught at my school because he knew it was going to be important. Um, I had a physics teacher who used his own money to buy a robotics kit and teach us robotics at lunchtime. And those are the things that I didn't appreciate as a kid, right? Um, but what mentors do or people like that is that they open you, they expand your horizons, they guide you and they help you, um, you know, they kind of push you in the right direction uh, when you're younger it's it's a it's a relationship you know that's a little bit more like that but then as I as I grew up I found mentors who are people that I work with now right people who could guide me in terms of like hey this was my experience or hey let me pass on your resume or let me talk to you about career um and I still have mentors today um and I will continue to for the rest of my life right um so I have mentors today who um, whenever I need to figure out what's next in my career, I have, I'm not kidding you. I have a list. It's actually right here because I'm, I need to set meetings with them. I try to meet with them at least once a year, talk to them about my career and my goals. And, um, and it's, it's really helpful. It's an exchange of communication of information, but, um, I think especially in aerospace and in aviation, it's, it's something that is part of what we do because there's only so much you can learn on the job. And so mentoring, whether it be technical or career or personal, um, is, is just how you progress in this field. Um, and, and honestly, I often remind people, you don't have to do all of this alone. You don't, I didn't get to where I am just by myself, I, I had allies, I had mentors who opened doors for me. And that's why I give back because I recognize the importance of those people in my life. And so now that I've made it to where I wanna be and that I absolutely love what I do, I feel like it's my duty to give back and, and mentor others. So whether it be younger engineers within my field who come to JPL or to come that come to aerospace in general and are, are looking for guidance, um, all within my community. Because one thing that I have to recognize and that I is that I'm privileged. My parents both had university educations. My dad, as I told you, was an engineer. My mom is a teacher. So even though they were they were immigrants and, and, and had their own challenges, I'm definitely privileged, right? I, I had that guidance, I had that structure, um, and, and I, was, I was able to thrive in school. Not everyone has that, no one, not everyone has access to those resources. And so the way that we're going to level that playing field, yes, there's some broader societal changes that have to happen, but I can also help that by helping my local community. And so for me, it's incredibly important to go talk to, to schools. That's why I mentor in my local community, but that's also why I spend so much time doing um, outreach events and, and communicating, particularly in French, but also generally in Canada. Because for me growing up, 
you know, especially in, in Quebec, where we speak French, a lot of the media is in English and doesn't reach out, reach to, to those kids who don't yet know English, right? Um, so for me, it's been really important to use my platform, use where I am today to help others and to show them what opportunities there might be. Um, because I was lucky enough that I had a few people along my life who, who were those people for me. I know we talk about how small the aviation industry is and how in many ways uniquely challenging it can be. You don't necessarily have all the answers when you first start out. And it is directly because people make the time for you that you begin to sort of develop yourself and come into being a real person, sort of, so to speak, within <laughs> aviation. Um, and although oftentimes with mentors, you can't necessarily directly repay them, you can always pay it forward. And I think you are just a shining example of that. Well, thank you. Yeah, that's exactly the motivation, right? Is, yeah, I absolutely recognize that how lucky I am to have had these people that have helped me. And it's, I think it's true of every field, right? Why not pay it forward? Why not help someone else? Uh, it doesn't really cost you anything, cost you time. But, um, and, and I think that's how, that's how we bring about, you know, going back to diversity, that's how we bring about a more diverse workforce. And that's how we, we, honestly, I'm just so grateful that I can get to live my dream every day. I love it so much that I just want other people to have that same feeling. Um, and, you know, I want to share that with others. Um, because it's it's incredible, and I'm so grateful that I get to do what I do. Now, you interned with NASA during your master's, and then ultimately you are now working there. But how, what did that process look like in terms of going from an internship into a real job? Um, well, for me, it was a little strange because, so I, I told you that I, I interned at JPL, particularly at NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab, in uh, in 2012, and, and I fell in love with the place and decided, yep, this is definitely where I want to work. Um, so I came back the next summer, um, which was the last summer before the end of my PhD, and interned in a slightly different group doing slightly different research. And what I did over that summer is I decided, okay, this is my dream, and I'm going to go for it. And that's that's usually how I sort of live my life, right? But um, but especially at that time, I thought, if this is my dream. I'm going to try as hard as I can to get a job here because otherwise I'm always going to regret, right? Like I don't want to have the what ifs in my life of like, why did I not pursue this? So literally what I did is I took my resume. I went to, we have an org chart. I picked all of the hiring managers and I was like, yes, this person, like they're in this field that could fit for me. I scheduled meetings with them while I was on this internship sat in their offices and most people are more than happy to sit down with you for like 15, 30 minutes if you ask them about their job. And so I did and find out what their groups did, sort of showed them what I did, left my resume with them. And I organized the end of summer presentation where I showed them my research. Um, and so I've never actually interviewed at NASA <laughs> because when it came to it at the end of my internship, um, you know, they, I had met so many people and they were like, oh yeah, Farah's applied, you know, applied for a job here. Um, and they were like, well, you know, typically the interview process is that you sit down with the managers and you give a presentation, but she did all of that already. <laughs> so they just gave me a job offer at the end of the summer, um, which is pretty incredible. But, um, but all that to say, it's kind of like, I really wanted it and I went for it. And I, I, you know, I think you, you have to ask for what you want. I was very direct about what I wanted. I put a lot of effort into it. Um, so, but it, yeah, it's kind of funny because sometimes when people in, interview uh, for jobs where I work, I'm like, well, I never interviewed here, so I don't actually know. <laughs> um, but the reality is I kind of do know. But uh, um, so, yeah, so for me, that was just really asking for what I want and pushing for it. And and um, and that caught the attention of a couple of hiring managers. And that's how I got my job. That sounds like such a type A keener attitude of going about <laughs> getting hired at NASA, just that, hey, I'm really enjoying this. I want to find the people that are the decision makers, get to know them, and just keep on reminding them that I'm here, I'm interested, this is what I want to do. And I mean, the results speak for themselves. Yeah, I mean, it definitely... And I'm, I'm going to be honest with you, it's something that takes me out of my comfort zone, right? I, I don't... 
and I think a lot of people might relate to that, like asking for what you want is something that can be really difficult, right? You kind of put yourself out there. Uh, and that's true, not just for finding a job, but generally, um, because you can build up hope, you can, you can feel uncomfortable asking for what you want. Uh, but in this case, the desire to do what I wanted to do, and the dream was, was kind of overcame the discomfort of having to put myself out there and meeting strangers. Um, you know, you, again, that's something that hopefully a lot of you will relate with. But even talking to strangers or talking to people at conferences, not something that comes easily for me, not necessarily, right? Like, um, you know, I like public speaking and I'm good at it, but approaching someone to ask them for something or ask them about something, that's not easy. And, and so I'm sure you know, some of you might relate to that. And, and that's, that's okay. Uh, I got better at it by practicing, by forcing myself to do it. Basically, I was like, nope, they want this job. I'm going to go talk to this person and ask them for something. And yeah, sometimes those conversations were weird and awkward, but, um, but that's, that's okay. Um, and, and, you know, you'll get better at it or some interactions will be, uh, will be a little different. Um, but, you know, I say this because I want to tell people that it doesn't come easily. And if you are listening to me and you're like, well, of course she could knock on doors, right? Like she's used to talking to people. No, no, it's, it's just as hard for everyone. Uh, and it comes with practice and putting yourself out there. Now we've talked a lot about JPL, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, but what really is their mission? So um, JPL is one of the many NASA centers in the United States, but particularly we focus on the robotic exploration of our solar system and our universe. So we actually don't do human exploration uh, or we contribute to it, but not directly. Um, so we um, observe our own planet because Earth is one of the planets in our solar system. And part of the work we do is, is learning about our own planet's climate. We do a lot of carbon and water monitoring, for example. And then we explore other planets, either directly or via uh, observatories, right? Um, so, and oh, a lot of what we do also is these Mars missions. So whenever you hear about us landing a rover or a lander on Mars, so far it's always been from the Jet Propulsion Lab, right? So, um, so, um, that, yeah, so that's what we do. We focus on that. And then specifically right now, one of the big focuses or the big questions that we ask ourselves when it comes to the exploration of other planets is that we are searching for signs of life, um, right? That's, that's one of the big questions in general that NASA is asking itself. So the Perseverance mission that landed on Mars in February that I work on is explicitly searching for signs of ancient life on Mars. Um, but we have other missions like the Europa Clipper mission that is going to Europa, which is one of the moons of Jupiter. That's this icy moon that has a water ocean. Uh, again, we're looking there to understand whether these types of moons might be habitable because they have water and chemistry and, and, and energy and all the things that we think are the recipes uh, for life. Um, so yeah, that's specifically what we do. And we do everything from designing to building new spacecraft. And then um, we, oddly enough, even though we're called a jet propulsion lab and, and the JPL is actually, you know, we're the ones that did um, the, the early rockets for the United States. We don't actually build rockets anymore. Um, those are usually done um, by, uh, well, those are done by public, you know, by industry. Uh, JPL is really in the, we're not really in the business of manufacturing anything. Uh, we're kind of the one-off explorers. We do the things that haven't been done before, the difficult things that are different. Um, and then things that, that are, tend themselves more to manufacturing actually work a lot better in the private industry. And so we, we go to, to, to companies to, um, to literally buy our rockets. Uh, you know, the Europa Clipper mission recently announced that they bought a SpaceX um, Falcon Heavy rocket to launch that mission. And that, so that's how it works. So it's, it's a really nice synergy between what we do and then what um, industry does um, together to explore the solar system. Now, what specifically does a systems engineer like you do with JPL? So I always say to people that I'm a little bit of a jack of all trades. Uh, so the way that systems engineers, you know, you might, in other industries, people think of systems engineers as the IT people perhaps who like uh, work on computers. That is not what I do at all. Um, so we use the term very differently. 
Um, so, you know, when you, you're building a spacecraft, for example, you'll have people that are specialized in their own uh, little, in their own subsystem, right? So there's going to be someone who's really specialized in how you get energy of a spacecraft, how you manage it thermally, how you deal with the avionics, the computer, uh, someone who's, who's good at optics, people who contribute the instruments, things like that. While these people are seeing a piece of, of that spacecraft, right? And my job as a systems engineer is to bring that together. Um, so what the systems engineer does is they sit at the interfaces of, of these subsystems and bring it together, right? How do we make sure that all these spaces like physically fit? Uh, how do we make sure they can all talk to each other? How do we test things, not just at a, at a box level, like sure my computer works here, but once I connect it to, um, once I connect it to this camera on a driving rover, does that all work together? How do functionally, if I want to take a sample from the surface of Mars, what do I have to do with all these pieces to get that sample, right? How do I operate this all the way from Earth? Those are the type of questions that the, that the um, systems engineers work on. Um, so, so I know a little bit enough to be dangerous of all of these subsystems, right? Uh, but I'm not always, you know, I'm not typically the one that's, that's, figuring out exactly what a particular board would look like, but I will help define what it needs to do and then test it um, and, and, and think about that bigger whole spacecraft picture, essentially. Now, was there a particular systems challenge that you had that once you found the resolution was particularly satisfying? Oh, I mean, there's been, there's been so many. Um, there's, uh, let's see, there's been, um, I used to work on a CubeSat called Marco, uh, which was a, um, a pair of a small, very small spacecraft that, that co-launched with the InSight launder and provided telecommunication relay during the landing. And I remember that one was, was always a difficult problem because it's such a small footprint and we had to fit everything in there. So we had to come up with some really smart um, design decisions on, okay, if we operate the spacecraft this way and orient it this way, we can save on fuel and that saves us space in the spacecraft to be able to, uh, um, to, to um, operate it. Um, so that, that is one, I, I worked on a mission that was a proposal um, that NASA eventually funded where we were trying to figure out how these spacecraft would, would fly in formation um, around Earth orbit and it, and, and we couldn't figure it out. And then one day we came up with this sort of wild idea and thought, oh, what if we just, what if we use GPS instead, right? In Earth orbit, would that, like, would that work? Can we get high precision GPS in, in, in very high Earth orbit? And, and we did some research and someone had done it before and turns out you could. And then that solved one of our very hard technical problems and it kind of just fell in place. So, I mean, there's, we could sit here for hours of me telling you of these little weird questions that we asked ourselves or like, what if we could do it this way? Or like, let's try these three different ways and figure out which one works best in the end. That's kind of, that's like what we thrive on. I think and what I thrive on at least is like these smart solutions that, that solve uh, uh, complex problems. That's kind of that's kind of what we do. Now, the Perseverance rover landed on Mars on February eighteenth, twenty twenty one. As a systems engineer and as someone that had sort of come full circle with the Perseverance rover, what does it feel like to ultimately land something on Mars? I mean, it's incredible. So, Perseverance was actually my second Mars landing, and I also worked on the Insight mission that landed on Mars in twenty eighteen, and. You know, the, it's not any easier the second time around. It just gets just as difficult. Um, what, is, what is my favorite part, you know, from the twice, two times I've done it of landing on Mars is when you get that first picture of where you are and you realize that you're on another planet. And I know that like cognitively it's strange, but I know that, you know, you see the rocket go and you know your space car's on its way to Mars and, but you know, then you're just in space and it's kind of empty and you're like, okay, like I know physics wise where we are and, and where we're going and we're talking to the spacecraft every day. Um, but it's a very different story once you actually land on Mars and it's an incredible moment because as you said, teams of people work on these things for years um, before they get to Mars. And, 
and it's an incredibly stressful landing. Um, that entire landing sequence is automated, and once you get down to the ground, you know you don't you can't command it during that landing sequence, and so it's very stressful. Um, so it's I, I can talk for everyone on the team, right? When you get that first like touchdown confirmed, get those images. Um, it's just a, an incredible moment of relief and joy uh, to to have worked on something that's on Mars and that's working. And, and but you know even today when we're operating this rover on Mars and, and, you know, every day we talk to the rover and get information from it. And I'm like, wow, we're like on that other planet. It's, I think it sinks in when you see Mars in the night sky and it's like, whoa, my rover is up there and I talk to it and it's like exploring the planet. Um, so it, it is an incredible feeling. I have to say, you see sometimes the footage of a room of engineers all watching a touchdown and just the eruption of excitement and joy that just ripples throughout the entire room. I can only imagine how incredibly exciting it would be to just be in that moment and part of that team. Um, yeah, I mean, those are moments I think you remember forever. And, and even this time around with the Perseverance landing, I mean, we were all separated because of COVID. We were, thankfully, some of us were together, um, but I will still remember that moment. I mean, it was Oh, it was that, you know, and every time I think about it, I get goosebumps in my, I get that like pit in my stomach of like, oh my God, that was so stressful. Um, but yeah, I mean, and the reason for it is because it's, like I said, it's kind of the culmination of years of work and, and it's, it's quite an accomplishment, to be honest. It's not that often that we land on other planets um, and land successfully. So, so I think each time is a reason to celebrate. Now, in addition to the Mars landings, you were also the mission engineer for the Asteroid Robotic Redirect Mission. Can you tell us a bit more about that program and how essentially you approached stealing an asteroid? Yeah, so that was, uh, so that mission was a um, preliminary mission that ended up being canceled, uh, but it was a really interesting project. Um, at the time, we were exploring the possibility of uh, demonstrating what we call planetary defense, which is prevent, um, it's defending the planet essentially from, from asteroid impacts. And what that particular mission was doing was we were going to take a piece of an asteroid and bring it back towards Earth. And by a piece, I mean like it was a giant boulder. Um, so totally different scale of spacecraft and things to do, equally as crazy as every other mission I've worked on. Um, but um, so that, that was certainly an interesting idea. Um, what was particularly fun with that mission is that we worked with several different NASA centers. The goal uh, had been to bring back this piece of an asteroid to Earth orbit and have humans go um, you know, explore it or, or interact with it. Um, and so I, I got to see different aspects, a little bit different from the other Mars missions that I worked on. Uh, but the problem is all the same. The trades are the same. The type of interactions that you have with people are the same. It's just a different, a different problem, essentially, that you're dealing with. Now, recently, you were named one of Wings Magazine's top 40 under 40 Canadians in aviation. What did that mean to you personally? I think it's just incredible to be recognized for the work that I do. I mean, the work that I do, I'm part of a bigger team, obviously. And, and, uh, and I think w whenever I get an award, it, to my, in my mind, it's really for the entire team's work. As I mentioned, we all do a piece of a bigger, uh, of a bigger puzzle. Um, but it's been such an honor to, to be recognized, especially back home and, and, and for the, for my efforts to be shared with others, essentially, um, I, um, I'm definitely, I'm grateful for the platform I've been given. Uh, I, as I mentioned, using that to educate others and use that to encourage others to follow their dreams. Um, so I am very humbled by that and, and appreciate that, um, that people are now interested in aerospace. I can tell you, even during the Mars landing, uh, you know, some of this, some of this recognition was starting to come through. And I remember people telling me that they were watching the landing and, and I could feel it. I could feel that warmth. I could feel um, the country essentially being there and being super interested in, in what we do. And, and that, that part of it is, was incredible to feel like I had the you know, people interested in what we did. And I can't tell you how many parents sent me messages of that kids being excited about what we were doing on Mars. And it's just 
that that's the part that's incredible, right? It's it's I'm grateful for the recognition, but I'm even more grateful for being given that platform that allows me to encourage others to to be curious about science and to be to find engineering and technology cool because hopefully that will convince some of those kids to to pursue their own path. I know we touched on earlier the fact that not everyone gets to grow up to be an astronaut or a rock star, but that must have been a great rock star moment. <laughs> that was pretty incredible, yeah. <laughs> now, who is someone in aviation you admire and why? Um, so, you know, growing up, I think uh, the people that I admired were the women that paved the way, right? And and we talked, we touched on the fact that it's it's, you know, aerospace is still a field where there aren't as many women, um, but certainly, you know, we're at about 25% women now. It was not the case even 10 or 20 years ago. And so there are so many incredible women out there who worked to, to, to be those trailblazers, to be the women that, that first got the seats at the table that uh, that uh, were listened to. Um, so for me, people like Julie Payette, like Mae Jameson, who was the first person of color in space, um, all of these women who contributed to the Apollo missions and, and, to, and to aerospace in general, they, they as a collective are the people that I admire. They're the reason why I'm here today. There's a, they're a reason why I got my seat at the table. And I'm so grateful um, that, that they, that they didn't give up and then they kept pushing to be recognized for what they do. Now, would you please share with me a favorite memory or highlight from any point in your career? And I know we have touched on several today. Um, I mean, there's so many to choose from, but oddly enough, the, my favorite memory is a very recent memory of about four months ago, three months ago. Um, I think one of the most incredible thing that I've been a part of in my career, you know, in addition to landing on Mars, is being part of the ingenuity mission that performed the first powered flight on on another planet right and and that first flight uh in in april was the culmination of you know we've talked about creativity we've talked about teamwork we've talked about daring to do crazy things for me being part of that team was just an incredible honor and and you know, it's people ask me, they're like, they're like, well, didn't you know it was going to work? And it's like, no, not really. Like you test things on Earth, but everything's different on Earth. And and we try and mimic the Martian environment, but it's just completely different. Right. Um, and even for me, it was that first flight, even though we've done bold and crazy flights since then, that first flight of just taking off on Mars and hovering and then coming back down. Uh, is a memory I think I'm going to have with me forever. It honestly is only just starting to sink in what we did and what we're doing with that mission. Um, it's it's just such an honor to be part of that team and to literally be making aviation history um, on another planet. Now I have some rapid fire questions just before. Okay. <laughs> uh, Star Wars or Star Trek? Star Wars. <laughs> Favorite space movie aside from Apollo 13? Uh, ooh, you know, I, there's just too many. I don't know. I can't pick. Sorry. <laughs> that's, that's totally fine. Now, is it Enceladus? Enceladus. Enceladus. Why is Enceladus your favorite moon? I need to know um, the criteria of favorite moon. Yeah. Okay. So I, I worked on some studies uh, about Enceladus and Enceladus is just this incredible moon of Saturn. It's one of those icy moons that has an ocean so it has potential for astrobiology, but it has these massive geysers um, at the south pole of the moon that are just spewing water out into space. And so it's an excellent target to go, you know, catch that water, study, um, study uh, what might be going on there. But also if you've ever seen pictures of Enceladus, it is is, is aesthetically very beautiful. Um, it's this moon that has more water than we have on earth and it, it's so tiny, um, but it's just like such a crazy moon to be all the way out there. So that's why I love it so much. Now, before we wrap up today, where can our listeners find you on social media? Oh, uh, you can find me at, at Triferatops on Instagram. Uh, so that's like like Triceratops, but with far in the middle. <laughs> um, and then on uh, Twitter, it's just at Farah Alabe. 
We will be sure to have both those links in the episode description for our listeners. Dr. Farah Alibe, thank you so much for joining me. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. The Holding Short Podcast is a production of Holding Short Media. The show is written and hosted by me, Laura Matheson, and edited and produced by Cameron Bokoff. Our music is an original composition of Riley Searle. If you would like to learn more about the show, the Holding Short Podcast is on Instagram and Facebook at Holding Short Media. Please subscribe, rate, and review us.